This morning we want to go back to what this series is going to focus on, the Olivet Discourse. And I hope I've impressed upon you how important the nation of Israel is in not only world history, but in God's plan in terms of what he's going to do in the future. So keep your eyes on in terms of what's going on in the news, track what's going on with the nation of Israel. I think God may be setting the stage for whatever he may have in mind specifically. We know from scripture a few things that God is using circumstances to bring the nation of Israel to faith, essentially. And that's one of the things that the Olivet Discourse will show us as we get into it. There's two things, as you notice on your outline sheet, that I'd like to focus in on. We didn't complete the introduction last time we were in the Olivet Discourse. And the second thing is I want to look at some passages that precede the Olivet Discourse, chapter 23, to give you the context, to give you the context of the Olivet Discourse. So we began an introduction, and in that I gave you a little bit of introduction to the time frame in which we live in, because we should always be prepared for what God has in terms of his prophetic plan. We should not be date setters, or we should not take some extreme or sensationalize, but we should have a biblical perspective, and hopefully that's what we want to develop as we go through the Olivet Discourse. So I'm going to hopefully steer us away from the sensational aspect. In fact, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in terms of how do you interpret the passage. So I gave you an introduction gave you something of a background in terms of the foundations. So I gave you a thumbnail sketch of God's plan overall, reviewing in broad strokes world history. Then we focused on Matthew's Gospel to give you the context of the Olivet Discourse and what God is doing. This is a very important passage in the thinking and teaching that Matthew is communicating in his book. So... That's where we left off last time. Just a quick review on Matthew. On this chart or slide, I'd like to give you all of Matthew on one little slide. The early ministry of Christ, as Matthew portrays it. In fact, all four Gospels. Jesus increases in popularity. The crowds are recognizing that this Jesus must be the Messiah. And that he is what uh, the Old Testament promised. He's fulfilling promises, he's fulfilling prophecy, he's fulfilling covenants. So the public ministry is emphasized, the early chapters, and the increase in popularity. Chapter 12 is a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. When you get to chapter 12, behind the scenes in these early chapters you have opposition, but then it comes to a climax in chapter 12. A plot is formed to try to basically kill the Lord Jesus Christ. The religious leaders have rejected him, and it comes to the surface in chapter 12. So the main issue in the first century would have been, if Jesus is the Messiah, what happened to the kingdom? Where did the kingdom go? Because when the Messiah comes, the kingdom is to be established. Every Old Testament passage that speaks of the coming of Messiah 
The coming of Messiah is in order that there'll be a new order that Messiah deliver the children of Israel from oppression, from the invading armies that surround them, from persecution in some stages, and establish a kingdom. Well, what happened to that kingdom? The Messiah was killed. The, the Olivet Discourse answers that question. Probably more so than any of the other Gospels. So we'll talk about that. Just a summary of Matthew's Gospel in terms of the kingdom. The kingdom is definitely offered. In fact, it's offered to that first century group of disciples and believers. We should not call it the church because the church is not founded till later on in the history in the book of Acts. But John Baptist in chapter 3, this is a review, you already have all these. Basically, he's preparing the nation concerning the kingdom. Remember those verses. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, chapter 4, verse 17, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom, prepare for it because it is available. It is at hand. I'm the Messiah. Now, he doesn't say that explicitly, but basically that's essentially what he's doing and saying. Therefore, the kingdom must follow. The kingdom must be established. Well, Sermon on the Mount, one of the main themes is that we need to prepare for the kingdom, preparation for the kingdom. And the best way to interpret the passages there is if you are preparing for the kingdom, here are principles to do that. Sermon on the Mount. And it was intended in the first century to do that. Then we have a series of miracles. They're not chronological. What Matthew does is he groups them together, chapters 8 and 9. They're designed to demonstrate and to authenticate that Jesus is, in fact, all that he says that he claims to be. He is the Messiah. Messiah performs miracles. Matthew ties them to Old Testament prophecy. So it's a vivid display that authenticates that Jesus is, in fact, Messiah. So these are very important miracles in terms of the program of the kingdom. But the king is rejected, particularly in verse 14, where that plot is revealed, the plot to kill him. And more specifically, in verses 22 through 24, their conclusion, their motivation is made clear. They think that Jesus is a false prophet and that he performs miracles by the power of Satan himself. And that is the unforgivable sin, by the way, the unpardonable sin. So they have rejected the Messiah. This is the turning point. Everything in Matthew's Gospel from here on out is essentially leading to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus turns his attention to the disciples and is going to prepare them for this period of time between this first coming and the crucifixion and a period of time that precedes a second coming when the kingdom will be established. So he's preparing them for that. Part of the preparation, he's giving him a new form of the kingdom, chapter 13, in parable form, that describes this interim period between the first and the second comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you want to chart it, we have the plot, chapter 12, 
And then we have the opposition. I point it downward because it's negative. It increases in a downward direction, if you will. So the opposition continues and climaxes at the cross, but also the emphasis of Matthew is to prepare the disciples, so more attention to discipleship and preparation for them and for their ministry after the crucifixion. And in chapter 21, the kingdom is explicitly stated that it's going to be removed from that generation, chapter 21, 42 through 43, So the opposition increases, chapters 21 and 22, he is overtly rejected, and now it's just a matter of circumstances, and he will be crucified. Private preparation of the disciples, 27, crucifixion, 28 is the resurrection, the sequel to the life of Christ, essentially. And that's the end of the gospel, which confirms, if there was any doubt, that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but Jesus is God himself, and everything that he said will, in fact, take place. So there's all of Matthew on one slide. And what the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, don't forget 25, what it does is it solidifies this concept that the kingdom has been postponed has not been abandoned, has not been changed such that it's amillennial now, or in other words, it's different, it's not the church, the church is not the kingdom. That's a misconception amongst the many. In fact, most believers think that the kingdom is the church. That's not the case. The Olivet Discourse, as we get into it, particularly chapter 25, it is postponed, and it awaits the second coming of the Messiah. Very, very important. So that's the place. That answers that question. What happened to the kingdom? If the king is here, what happened? Well, kingdom is postponed. That's the answer that Matthew gives us. Now, the other gospels somewhat hint at that, and it's not as clear. And the Olivet Discourse does occur in Mark and in Luke. So in a subtle way, it is also included there. But the emphasis of the kingdom is primarily... Matthew's Gospel. So that's a summary of where we were last time. And we concluded by looking at the approaches to the Olivet Discourse. In other words, how do we interpret this passage? And we need to give attention to that because there's a variety of ways that scholars, and then as a result churches, and as a result individual believers come when they come to the uh, Olivet Discourse. There's even a division, there's even a difference within those that are more conservative, more in line to what we believe in terms of inspiration of Scripture and inerrancy. Even within our camp, there is some differences that I want to call your attention to and give you the proper interpretation, right? Whatever I interpret is proper, right? (laughs) So let's take a look. Pardon me. Gospel according to St. Ray. That's right. So let's take a look at some hermeneutical approaches, and I've got them listed on your outline sheet. In fact, I've reproduced the last part of the last outline sheet, and then we'll get to the setting at the end of our, our class. Hermeneutical approaches, well, there is what is called, and by the way, let me uh, backtrack a little bit here. These approaches... 
not only apply to the Olivet Discourse, that's why these are important to understand and know about. These approaches are an approach to eschatology overall, in general. So if you're studying the book of Revelation, these approaches exist in terms of interpreting the book of Revelation as well. And they also exist, I think I mentioned, very brief preterism, even when we were talking about Ezekiel. Remember last week, I briefly mentioned it, I didn't spend much time on that. So these approaches you can find in terms of interpreting Bible prophecy in general. So they're important, not just for the Olivet Discourse. That's why I want to spend a little time on them. Well, first of all, there's what is called preterism. You might say, well, this seems way out. Well, it's not so way out because much of the Reformed Church today takes this approach. It's called preterism, and it just basically means past. So it's an interpretation that says that most prophetic events took place in the past, or took place in the first century. Took place in the first century. Now, preterism, in terms of the passage in Ezekiel that I mentioned, they would say that it took place in the Old Testament. So preterism, in general, took place in the first century, or took place before first century. So most of Bible prophecy from this viewpoint is already fulfilled. It's already taken place. Does that make sense? You understand what they they believe? And like I said, this is not an obscure kind of way out interpretation. Much of the Reformed Church takes this approach. How many of you have benefited from R.C. Sproul? He's an excellent expositor. Very good. In fact, I would highly recommend him in most areas except eschatology. He's got a recent, well, not so recent book, what, 10 10 or so years old, on Bible prophecy. I think it's primarily the book of Revelation, but it uses this approach to interpret the events of the book of Revelation. Can't remember the name of it. Anyone remember the name of it? Jim, do you remember the name of it? Anyway, it's it's out there. It's relatively popular. So, preterism. Now, there's two forms of it. There's what's called extreme preterism. The extreme position is that virtually all prophecies have taken place by the first century, and a lot of them are clustered around 70 A.D., So the Great Tribulation that is described, and much of the book of Revelation, because much of the book of Revelation, from chapters 6 through chapter 18, deal with this period called Tribulation. Extreme preterism would put all of that fulfilled by 70 A.D., and 70 A.D. would even represent the Second Coming. Because when Jesus comes, he comes in judgment, and 70 A.D. would be the appearing of Christ in judgment. Not in personal, not in visible form, but he appears in the form of judgment. That's extreme preterism. That's a view. Now, R.C. Scroll is not an extreme preterist. He is what we would describe as the second alternative to preterism. So Christ's return in the form of judgment would be 70 A.D. 
Now, obviously, you have to, what do you have to do to Scripture in order to come up with this viewpoint, particularly the second coming? You have to violate some basic hermeneutical principles, and you have to do what to Scripture? These prophetic events. Can't hear you. Spiritualize. Spiritualize or take a non-literal interpretation of these passages, which is very common. All right? Now, there's another form called moderate preterism. This is where R.C. Sproul would fit, and a lot of the Reformed Church. The extreme preterism is a little bit rare and somewhat of a minority, but it does exist. Most of the preterists are moderate, and basically they would say the same thing concerning the tribulation, but in terms of Christ's return, rather than in 70 A.D., that is one of the few events that they would see that is yet future, and future from our period of time as well. So that's the basic difference between the moderate preterism and the extreme preterism. Does that make sense? You should have noted this is a timeline here. So there's the crucifixion, there's 70 AD, and most preterists are also amillennial, by the way, as is most Reformed theology is amillennial. In other words, the, the church is the kingdom, there's no future, literal, visible, earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual, heavenly kingdom. And there's a couple of forms of that form of amillennialism I won't get into. So there's moderate preterism. There's also, and this is very popular as well, historicism. A different perspective, a different viewpoint, a different way of interpreting prophecy. Now, this came out of the Protestant Reformation, so it's very popular amongst Protestant denominations, some Protestant denominations. Historicism. And during the Reformation, remember there was a Reformation because the Roman Catholic Church at that time was somewhat corrupt, and even Catholics would admit that, and the Reformation was to try to bring people into a proper relationship with God. Now, to be fair to the Reformers, they did not do a lot of work in eschatology, but the work that they did, the little bit that they did, came from this viewpoint. And the historicism viewpoint, or historicist, they see prophetic events taking place in history from the first century to the, to the end. Now, they would see much of it still future, but they would also see a lot of events taking place over the church age. That's historicism. Now, there's some conservatives that take our viewpoint that still adopt some of the historicist ideas. I'll show you that in a moment here. So the church age, to some extent, is this tribulation period under this, this approach. So what they would see is they would see a rapture in the future, as we would. So we would agree with that. But we would not see a church as the tribulation. We would see that as future. In fact, that's the title of our viewpoint. They would see church growth as time went on on this timeline and increasing apostasy as well. In other words, the church would decline and we would agree with some of that, particularly the increasing apostasy part in terms of eschatology and the church, or uh, progress of the church. There seems to indicate 
that in the latter days, the church, many will fall away. Those passages, the apostasy, in fact, 2 Timothy 2 speaks uh, in apostasy, a falling away of the church. I think we're seeing that today. So that's part of historicism. And there's a lot of stuff on there. But basically what I have there are those parables of Matthew 13. This is the way the historicist would interpret them. And the seven churches in the book of Revelation, this is the way they would interpret them. They would see the seven churches of the book of Revelation as unfolding. In other words, there's things in that are revealed concerning these seven churches that give hints concerning how the church will be, or the characteristic of the church, as the church age unfolds. Now, this did not come about until later, I think. That tie was made later on, after the even after the Reformation. So it's a, a late interpretation, obviously seemingly tying certain events with certain characteristics in the book of Revelation. So, number one, the church at Ephesus would be characteristic of the first century apostolic church and shortly after, where you have the parable of the sower, where there are the four soils, different ways of responding to the gospel as the gospel went out in the first century. And the next one, the church of Smyrna and the book of Revelation, this church experiences persecution. And that would picture the persecution that would follow beginning even as early as Nero and maybe Domitian and certainly second and third centuries, church at Smyrna. And then they would see degeneration of the church, Thyatira or Pergamum, Thyatira, leaven, remember the contamination, the parable of the leaven, parable of the mustard seed, starting out small, growing, but then perverting. And as you go through, I won't go through each one of them, supposedly we're living in the age of Laodicea, the church that Jesus says if they don't repent, he will vomit them out of his mouth. Remember that passage? Church at Laodicea. Well, in general, I think... Superficially, you can see maybe some ties there, but keep in mind this comes from the historicist interpretation. Personally, I don't like to emphasize that aspect when interpreting the seven churches. I think the better way to interpret seven churches is interpret them the same way we would interpret uh, the book of Colossians or the book of Philippians. The letters. These are little letters. The only difference is these are letters from the Lord Jesus Christ himself rather than a letter from Paul or a letter from James or a letter from Peter. These are little letters, so they would have all of the same characteristics. I would classify them as epistolary and would have the characteristics of epistles. This is what they are. And none of the other epistles are interpreted in this way, so I would not incline in that way. But a lot of conservatives, a lot of futurists, like this little scheme, and you'll find that in, for example, Ironside's commentary and some of the older commentaries and the newer commentaries that depend on some of those older ones. So you'll see that. But I think what it's doing is it's inconsistent in its hermeneutic in that it is interpreting from the historicist viewpoint and importing it into what I would say a more proper interpretation.
Does that make sense? Have you heard that? That we're living in the Laodicean church age? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's historicist. They would also interpret some of the book of Revelation, like the seal judgments. They would see them as a picture of early church history, and they would try to tie events. But what do you have to do again? You have to spiritualize passages in order to make them fit. And to some extent, you have to spiritualize passages to make them fit into the scheme of the seven churches as well. They would see the trumpet judgments as part of the middle part of the church age, the bowl judgments, the latter part of the church age. And these are judgments in the book of Revelation. Uh, seal judgment chapter 6, trumpet judgments 8 and 9, seal judgment chapter 16, book of Revelation. Make sense? And by the way, so they would tie events. And what the reformers did, one of the more kind of evident interpretations they were tying the papacy in the era of the reformers with the first beast of Revelation 13, or the Antichrist, which I think is a misinterpretation of that passage. So that's historicism. There's another approach that is more rare and a little bit, I think, distant from proper interpretation, which does a lot of spiritualizing. It's called idealism, but you'll find this. One of the main commentators, Hendrickson, who is a good commentator and, and has good good insight in most passages, and again, I would disagree when it comes to prophetic scriptures. Idealism is somewhat different from all of the others. It's a picture in symbolic form. There you go. You have to symbolize or spiritualize passages. They picture in symbolic form of eternal principles. And the main principle is good wins out. God wins. The church is victorious. And the evil forces are defeated. Those are the main principles. Now, they'll come up with other principles as well, but, but that's kind of the essence of it. So, they don't emphasize events of history they say that you should not look at these as events. You should look at these as symbols or illustrations of principles. See the difference? The proper approach is called futurism, which those in our camp and broader even than our camp, those that are more conservative, those that have a high view of scripture, those that attempt not to spiritualize prophetic events, those that take passages in a more literal, in other words, normal, natural, grammatical, historical, contextual approach, all of them would take a futurist viewpoint. It's a consistent, literal interpretation. Consistent, literal interpretation. And the futurist viewpoint is that most prophetic events taking place in the future. So, most of the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to the end, obviously. Much of the Old Testament passages, most of the Olivet Discourse, future. Future, not only from the first century, but future even from our age, or future from the church age era. These are events that take place after the church age. Now, there are two parts to this. There's a real popular approach that I'll get to. 
Now, there's a tendency amongst commentators to spiritualize the early part of the Bible, dealing with creation. A lot of people have a hard time with creation in terms of science and all those things. But remember, I do science in the scriptures, and I think you can take those passages literal, and I think that's a better approach. So also, dealing with things at the end of God's program, there's a tendency, because things are just so... Strange to some, so out of the normal, out of the ordinary, that they spiritualize. In other words, you have to spiritualize to come up with all of the other viewpoints. We try to be consistent, consistently literal. And if you do that, then you have a futurist interpretation of the passage. This is the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. Now, many use the grammatical, historical, contextual approach, but are inconsistent when it comes to Bible prophecy. We want to remain consistent in our interpretive approach, or hermeneutical approach. There's two approaches here. Some fulfillment in the church age. Those that take that viewpoint that I told you, that historicist viewpoint of the seven churches book of Revelation, this is one of the the areas where they see some fulfillment in the church age. So, some of the signs of Matthew chapter 24 start before the tribulation, but that also, I think, is influenced by historicist interpretation. By the way, Hal Lindsey, who I think is an excellent expositor, who I think somewhat awakened the church to Bible prophecy, this is his approach. He would see, for example, the he would claim increase of earthquakes in our period of time during the church age, increase of wars and rumors of wars. He would see that as fulfillment of Matthew chapter 24. Does that make sense? So this is very popular. In fact, most of the popular writers see some of the events of Matthew chapter 24 fulfilled in the church age. Now, the point I made last time is there are very, very few things that we could see as actual fulfillments of the church age. One of them is that Ezekiel 37 passage. But apart from that one, virtually not many other passages. So I I don't fully agree with this futurist viewpoint. So some see the rapture in the Olivet Discourse. And there's a passage that sounds like, looks like, quacks like, but is not (laughs) the rapture, all right? So some see the rapture in the Olivet Discourse, but it's not revealed until the upper room. This is Jesus' next major discourse with the disciples. That's where the rapture is revealed, not in the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is dealing with Jewish eschatology, and I've mentioned several times Most eschatology is Jewish. That that pertains to the church must fit within Jewish eschatology because that's the foundation and basis for all eschatology. So I don't see the rapture revealed until the upper room. That's chapter 14, the first couple of verses there. The future fulfillment in the tribulation. This is the viewpoint that I think is the best approach This avoids sensationalism, by the way. This avoids or helps us to keep it in check. 
we see fulfillment of all of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 in the future period of time called the tribulation. And I'll give you some reasons for that when we get into the text itself. I just want you to see the difference. See the difference here? I think the difference is very clear with the preterist, obviously. We see most were futurists. We're not looking at fulfillment in the past. It's different from historicists. Try to make that point. Whereas some futurists combined some small elements with the historicist, and I've rejected that, and certainly it's totally different from idealist, which takes a totally non-literal approach to interpreting. It attempts to be very consistent in terms of literal interpretation. Virtually all events of the Olivet Discourse during that period of time. It's dealing with Jewish eschatology. He's talking to Jewish individuals. All of the disciples were Jewish. They were familiar with the Old Testament. He's explaining what happened to the kingdom. The kingdom is an Old Testament concept that the New Testament simply elaborates on. It's not a church concept. It's a Jewish concept. Make sense? So, most Matthew mostly is future, if not all. Luke answers the question on 70 A.D. Now, Matthew touches on it in chapter 23. We're going to briefly look at it. So, that's our little introduction. Any questions on that? Does that summarize? Now, keep in mind, these viewpoints also apply to the book of Revelation, also apply to Bible prophecy in general. Yeah, we'll talk about this issue in terms of 70 A.D. And I should qualify that. I think Matthew refers to 70 A.D. not in the Olivet Discourse, but he does refer to it in uh, chapter 23. In the historicists or whatever, what do they think is left? I mean, they just think we're in that, that period? And that... They would see mainly events surrounding the Second Coming as still future. And most of them would also see only partial fulfillment of some of the Book of Revelation events. Jim? Well, I guess to talk about uh, why the church should not be caught by surprise about what's coming future tribulation, I guess, uh, is this part of what we should not be surprised by? Time ago? Well, yes and no. I'm going to talk a little bit about, from our perspective, we believe in the imminent return of the Lord. And when we speak of the return of the Lord, the New Testament seems to indicate that there are two stages of that coming. That first stage is imminent. In other words, it could happen at any time. In fact, if you read some of the passages, I hope I'm answering your question. I'll see if I did in a moment. It appears that even in the New Testament, there's some passages in the Apostle Paul that he felt like the Lord could return in that first phase in his lifetime. And I'll point out some of those. They don't come to mind off the top of my head. And that phase we call the rapture. That is invisible. That's private for the church only. First Thessalonians chapter 4, where the, we are taken up. That's resurrection. That is imminent. Even Paul thought it could take place. And we, 
need to live in such a way that we can anticipate and think that in our generation the rapture could take place. But in terms of the visible, the external, overt second coming, that's the second phase. That's what's described in the Olivet Discourse. The rapture is not described. Okay? So, in terms of anticipating and expecting, there are really no signs that point to the coming of the rapture. It's imminent. There are many signs that refer to the coming of the Lord overtly, visibly, stepping down on the Mount of Olives, establishing the kingdom. There are many signs of that. In fact, there's a seven-year period. We're going to talk about that specifically. Does that answer the question? Okay, tells you where, where we're going. Good. Okay. Okay, let's, in the time that we have remaining, let's take a quick look at chapter 23. So if you haven't already turned to chapter 23, this is obviously the chapter that precedes what? 24. Good. (laughs) You guys are sharp. And chapter 24 is what? (laughs) The Olivet Discourse. This is not part of the Olivet Discourse, but you need to understand these events that precede the Olivet Discourse. And what I'd like to do in the time that remains is give you a quick overview on this. We'll probably come back to some of these verses by way of reminder and maybe give you some more detail on it. But this is a very important passage that somewhat introduces us to the Olivet Discourse and gives us the context from Matthew's perspective on what's going on with the Lord Jesus Christ. I gave you kind of the broader context of the whole Gospel of Matthew, let's look specifically at the context. So this is the setting of the Olivet Discourse. You may expand that into the contextual setting. First of all, chapter 23. Remember, I said 21 and 22. Remember what I said on that chart? What's that? The nation did what to Jesus? The nation rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 23, Jesus returns the favor. He rejects the nation. Alright? You reject me, I'm going to reject you. Well, he has to. Because Messiah has to come to a believing nation. They have not believed. They've rejected him. So now in chapter 23, he rejects them. This is one of the most biting, the most severe passages in all of Scripture. There are a couple of parts to it. First of all, we have the inconsistency of the leaders, chapter 23, the first 12 verses. And we need to read that to kind of get the context. Somebody read first two verses there. Go ahead. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Okay, very good, yeah. You read through three, that's good. Great. Okay, who's he talking to, first of all? Multitudes, crowds, who else? Disciples. So there's believers, there's unbelievers. The first part is going to address, more specifically, the disciples. And then, obviously, by the time you get to verse 13... 
amongst the multitude are scribes and Pharisees, and probably representative of the whole nation. Because beginning in verse 13, this is that biting section, and there are woes to these leaders. So, he's telling the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In other words, they are seated in positions of authority that God has established. We need to respect, there's a principle here, we need to respect those that are in authority, particularly first century Moses' chair, it says here, and we can apply that in our situation, political chairs, pastors, leaders of churches, we need to give them the due respect of that position. But if they're hypocritical, if they're corrupt, if they're immoral, we're not to live like they live. That's essentially what he's telling them. And he's going to expand that as he goes through uh, verse 12. Now there's a shift. He's going to address the scribes and the Pharisees, beginning verse 13 all the way to verse 32. And what he's going to point out is the hypocrisy. Let's look at the first woe. Go ahead and read that one, Jim, since you were going to read. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. Okay. Now you need to read it like Jesus would have said it. Whoa, you scribes and Pharisees. In other words, I'm pronouncing the woes that you are familiar with from the Old Testament. In other words, there's coming judgment upon you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites. That's the way Jesus would have said it. All right. And then he gives the reason, because you shut off the kingdom, notice the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they are an obstacle for people receiving, coming to, understanding the kingdom of heaven. They are totally hypocritical. They are totally inconsistent with this coming kingdom. Now, we won't read the rest of them, but they're all very similar. In fact, he points out there's at least seven of them. Now, in the New American Standard, there's eight, but there's a textual problem with one of them. And I'm inclined to, to see it in the text, so there's really eight of these woes. And they're like Old Testament woes. They're like Old Testament prophetic announcements of coming doom by their woes. And they're very, very biting, very severe. And Jesus is not happy here. He's angry. Now, he'll get tender when he gets to verse 37, but right now he's addressing these leaders who have rejected him. Connie? All the woes are directed at leaders? Primarily, but people often follow, so there's a lot of hypocrisy in the people as well. But it's specifically addressed to the leaders, and they are held accountable. I think he puts the nation together as we progress further. In my Bible, verse 14 is in brackets. That's the one. Yes, that's the one that there's questionable manuscript evidence for. Right. So we have the hypocrisy of the leaders, and let's just introduce us to this, and then this is where we'll pick up and we'll move forward the next time we're in the Olivet Discourse. But let me summarize this. In 33 to 36, and let's read verse... 33 and 34. Somebody want to read those two? Connie? Serpents, through the vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? 
Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, some of them dying, some of them will scourge your synagogue. Okay. When I develop this further, he is predicting something that's going to happen after he's gone. But verse 33, basically this is his condemnation of the leaders. And since the people follow the leaders, remember they, the people ended up saying, crucify him. So they're kind of fickle. And he views them as serpents and vipers. And if you're a Jew, serpents and vipers are associated with the serpent of the garden. This is his condemnation of them. And they are guilty because he is sending them. Who are these prophets? Who are these wise men? Who are these scribes? These will be the disciples that, in the book of Acts, go out and share the gospel. In fact, there's a re-offer even of the kingdom in the book of Acts that is rejected. Okay, so they are condemned. So he condemns the nation in those verses. And let's conclude by looking at... 23, 37 through 39, he's going to explicitly tell us that the nation will be destroyed. Destruction of the nation. Let's just read those and we'll expand on them when we come back. Somebody read all three of those verses. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together Okay, there's the tender part. There's like a hen that wants to gather her children, but you have rejected the hen. You've gone contrary to nature even. Keep reading. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Your house is being left to you desolate. That's 70 A.D. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say... Notice the until. In other words, there is a future for the nation of Israel, but this generation is not going to see the kingdom. This generation is going to experience the judgment of 70 AD. But there's going to be until, in other words, there's a future time, a future generation that essentially says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is the context of the Olivet Discourse. That generation in the future of Jewish people that accept Messiah and say that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that generation is going to see kingdom that all Jewish people anticipated. Closing thought, there is the danger of hypocrisy and apostasy in the church today. Beware. Who wants to close for us? Go ahead. Our loving Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you that laid out future for us as you want us to know. Pray that you will give us wisdom. You will continue to give great wisdom and and teaches us that we might apply these things to ushering in our part we anticipate your kingdom. Yes. Amen.